Dear Lord, we are very grateful for your goodness to us, your church. We'd ask that you would um, instruct us from your word. In your son's name, amen. A few weeks ago, um, I don't know how many weeks ago, maybe three or four, uh, there's a phenomena that happens at Big House Land called the Men Who Were Monday. And on the Men Who Were Monday, that means that on Monday afternoon, certain men stop by, like they don't have jobs or something. And uh, Con Evans will come over, Kenny Noly, Drew Nicholas, John Hill, Greg Evans, various people, for discussion on the things of the scriptures, God. And I think it was on a Monday, uh, Drew was over, and he may have, I, I forget who else was there. And Drew brought up the question of the role of trust in the, our definition, our understanding of faith. Good discussion ensued. And I've been thinking about it ever since. I mean, it's sort of a, uh, been one of those nagging thoughts. So I was looking at it uh, in the last maybe two weeks, just in terms of how would you approach the question. I'm not the kind of person who's good at languages, so I don't say to the church, you know, it says in the Greek or the Hebrew for trust is, um, you have an English word called trust, work with that. We're going to work with it in English and try to offer some uh, direction for your mind so that you could pursue the idea, knowing, and so much of us in our lives is, how do we run the dipstick into our lives about how we're doing with the Lord? You know, 80, 90% of your responsibility before the Lord is not, was the Ambrose Bierce definition, uh, one who believes the Bible to be the inspired word of God and admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor. Well, that's not what it's for, it's for you. Your knowledge of God and your knowledge of the scriptures, 80, 90% of it's for you to fix your life. So as you go through various things and various things that may be a struggle to you, it's good to have certain concepts, you know, teased out a little bit. I thought I'd begin with uh, Ephesians 2. You know the passage. It's one of those, um, I don't know how many there are, but in evangelical Protestantism, there are certain references that every, you know, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Romans 8, 28, John 3, 16. You know that. I mean, right? There are certain passages that have reached uh, you know, celebrity status. And you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind. And so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. Well, a remarkable passage that guided the the Reformation in many ways. It guides us in our walk and our belief and our coming to Christ that by grace through faith you have been saved. And so consequently, we you might have heard the term fideists. Uh, we're called fideists to the degree of fides, it's faith. So we have fidelity, uh, faithfulness. Uh, um, but uh, a fideist is someone who is faith-centered. And if you've ever talked to a Mormon or a Roman Catholic who is a little concerned about Protestants, it comes up. So what do we do? Sometimes we overstretch the faith. We, we become more exquisitely fideistic in trying to convey to people there is nothing you can do. And I didn't have the passage out of Ephesians at the top of the page, eating up a third of it, just so that our sermon would be on that passage. It's not. It's just to let you know that faith, as you know and defined in Hebrews, very clearly, faith is this thing that Paul is, you know, pounding all the nails in with. The difficulty is, it says, you he made alive, verse 1. Verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. Have you heard of the seven-year itch? I think it was a movie. Who was in that? Marilyn Monroe? Okay, <laughs> so you understand what the movie's about suddenly. I didn't know what it was about until you said Marilyn Monroe. Well, the seven-year itch is a cliche regarding the boredom or the, the lack of spark that occurs in a marriage after seven years. People susceptible to affairs. Well, I'm not talking about the susceptibility to affairs. I'm talking about your walk with the Lord, where you're looking at it and you're going, you he made alive, and you're saying to yourself, what life? That you felt the tediousness or the, the boredom or the malaise of, of being a Christian and having these responsibilities of going to these church things and listening to these sermon things and caring about Christian music over non-Christian, whatever you're caring about, you realize this is just what weariness this is. Sometimes when we, when we realize that we have not been living what we would call life, our being alive, what is the phrase out of the Bee Gees, is not staying alive. Is today, seven years, eight years, 20 years into your Christian walk, 
Is it still life? Because sometimes we make very bad mistakes theologically when we realize that we're not alive or not feeling the life that the joy or the whatever it is about the walk you know you should have, how it's described biblically. And we're susceptible, like the husband who says, you know, looking at the old lady, and she's just, you know, not holding up, chasing after kids, too many bonbons. Um, so we're susceptible to bad doctrine. We want to bring, we, we, so in many cases, it's the change. It's, it's moving to a different town theologically to excite you again. So you're on the learning curve again about the new theology, whatever the new theology is. doesn't matter. You could go charismatic. You could go Greek Orthodox. You could do all sorts of things that are just, you didn't check to see if it was right. You just needed somebody different. You just needed an affair, a spiritual affair with a different set of teachings. So watch out. It's good to measure. It's good for you to go, yeah, you wouldn't describe my life as the living, breathing example of what it is to be a Christian. You couldn't say I've been made alive. You know when the gift of God comes to you that it's going to be something of well, if we did it, if we did it because it works, we would boast about it. You realize I have made myself this fine measure of virtue. Thank you. We're not even looking at a fine measure of virtue in ourselves anymore because we're no longer alive. So one of the dangers that comes up comes up at us very quickly from the book of James. Next passage, James 2. Now, I, I was thinking of this passage because last week we were teaching out of the Shema, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And uh, it's referred to in this passage. What does it profit, my brethren? If a man says he has faith but has not works, can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, the shame of. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Oh, man, James, for heaven's sake. A first person conversation, this passage comes up. It's usually this precise passage. So you, you know James wasn't an apostle. Google what? Well, he wasn't, he was a brother of the Lord. Oh, okay. He was a brother of Jesus Christ, not an apostle. Because, you know, we're Protestants, and this faith thing, this fideism has got to be protected at all costs. And so first you undercut his certification, not really an apostle, 
And then you remember hearing from someone that Martin Luther once said about James, it was an epistle of straw. And just by bringing that up, you sort of emotionally vindicate Martin Luther and push St. James down a flight of stairs. Because someone important like Martin Luther thought it was an epistle of straw for saying such nonsense. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So in James's mind, I call me old-fashioned, but I believe the apostles, and I believe the brothers of Jesus Christ. Both of them. He was bishop of the church in Jerusalem. What might help us out is when we say you believe that God is one. A lot of the fights that have occurred down through the ages are between certain sects of people. You know, you have, you have Pharisees, Sadducees, you have Democrats, Republicans, you have uh, um, slave states and free states, you have Englishmen and Frenchmen. monotheism and polytheism, or monotheism these days and atheism. We think we've made and closed a great gap by standing for monotheism. We find another monotheistic religion, like the Zoroastrians or something, and you go, oh, or the, uh, the, the Muslims. Well, there you go. We're on the same page with the Muslims because we got that monotheism thing worked out. Now, when we go back to the Shema from last week, there's more than an affirmation of monotheism. Yahweh, our God, is one Yahweh. Then it says, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus adds, with all your mind. So something, perhaps, weakness of faith in the demon's position, the demons believe that God is one, and it concerns them. Why does it concern the demons that God is one? They shudder at the concept. Well, because the rest of the Shema, they don't. They have not given their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength to God himself. They're ready for the judgment. Uh, so it comes back to us about this thing we talked about last week. How do we get that? You, you know, you're talking about having your windshield filled with Christ, you know, thinking of God when you wake up in the morning? How is your Christian life lived all the time about everything you do? Not how do you say a little pious prayer about everything or how do you have a Bible verse to mark every event or buy something at Hobby Lobby that, you know, says faith, hope, and love on it. Um, but how do you really get there? The Lord obviously wants you there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul, your mind, your strength.
and your neighbor as yourself. It's the centerpiece. It's the centerpiece. Dan Smith was arguing yesterday that this was the point of the church, love. How do we get there? Does the monotheism belief create it? Obviously, it doesn't for the demons. It just creates fear. How about some of the other beliefs of the Christian faith? The deity of Jesus Christ. Does that create it? Does that make God that central? Everything to you, that Christ is God. You know a lot of people believe that Christ is God. Some dear Christian friends of yours believe that Christ is God, and they're not walking in life. How about his death, burial, and resurrection? Because, you know, what we finally get down to is everybody has this exquisitely creedal line they want to draw between heresy and unorthodoxy and the truth and the point at which the belief of demons will save the demons. You know, where does... Okay, they're monotheists. That's clear. You believe that God is one. Even the demons believe and shudder. So obviously they're not believing something more. Since faith, we're fideous, since faith is everything. I want to introduce another word here at Romans 4 because you're uncomfortable with James and Paul said that stuff in Ephesians. So let's go to Paul in Romans 4. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. Now here's the key verse. And to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. So what just happened? I don't think Paul and James disagree with each other, one. But I think they talk about the, the stressors on the faith message differently. They combat the role of the Jews and the law differently, but they combat it. Paul here is saying, you don't work for this stuff, but there's something about trusting God, distinct what you believe propositionally about God. Because it said that about Abraham regarding his willingness to sacrifice his son. You know, actually offering a sacrifice and actually offering a human sacrifice because God had asked for one. Not because human sacrifices. We, last night we were, Brendan was over and Creed, I think, and got, got an abbey and got a little macabre for Thanksgiving weekend, but what about human sacrifice? And what is, gives us the, the pip about the Aztecs? You know, they, how many do they offer in that one ceremony? 80,000 lives in one ceremony of three days. They weren't a popular people. 
with the other people who got sacrificed. And it goes back many pay places in Chemosh and Molech in Palestine, the Sidonian perversions. You had human sacrifices all throughout the ancient world through different reasons. And you offer human sacrifices because you say, what's the most valuable thing I can give up for my God? You know, I could give up my car. But you know, my kids. I really like my kids. And what does it say? It says, doesn't it say that in Micah someplace? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. I mean, we naturally go to the most impressive self-denial we could give. And we kill people by the tens of thousands in order to please our gods. Now, is Abraham doing the same thing? Is Abraham offering a human sacrifice because... That's the most important thing he could kill for his God. When he offers it by his consideration of what's important versus what he gives because God asked for it, faith believes God. He believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He didn't believe in God. Believing God is the shift between faith and trust. Because if I believe him, not believe in him, now I believe in his goodness, I believe in his offer of goodness, I believe what he told me, I will do, I will do that which the God asks because I trust him. Not because I'm trying to get something from him, but because of course he's in charge. I trust him. Interestingly enough, more than I trust myself. Now, the introduction of that word trust, you could play with this a bit. We, we use it more effectively. Um, we would use it as an exchangeable word, trust, faith, belief. And it does work that way in the scriptures. I think some translations have this passage in Romans, but he who believes him who justifies the ungodly, that's how they translate it. So I'm not, I'm not trying to wrestle the word particular to the ground, but I want you to see the distinction <coughs> that comes because one exists between ability to believe in the doctrines and the ability to be changed wonderfully by the God of those doctrines. How do I get to the place where I am alive in it, where I have a love for the, my God in my heart, soul, mind, strength, in my everything. How can I, how can I um, serve him without question? Well, you know, if my faith is understood at times as trust, we know it when we say the word, I entrust this to you. Um, babysitters, you entrust your kids for the, what do you pay a babysitter these days? $300 an hour, something like that. 
You entrust your kids. We are leaving, husband and wife going out for a date. And here are, here are my children, my offspring, my descendants, everything that will carry on my name. I'm giving it to this 16-year-old girl to not ruin everything. No, well, that's entrusting. Entrusting your money to a financial advisor. We know, we know, we, know we, we, we cross a threshold. We cross a threshold when somebody says, um, do you believe so-and-so is a good babysitter? Yeah, sure. Would you leave your kids with them? Uh, nope. I could believe something and separate it from my trust of them. My trust of them in my belief my faith rests in the object that I have my faith in. I believe God. I am reaching that part of the equation that is what he is doing and saying. My trust is what I am actually offering. The propositional considerations are less important than whether or not I offer my... Um, Finances, my kids, my whatever. And what does it say of us? It says that anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We know we, we end up, this is a big deal. So everything, heart, soul, mind, strength, everything. We know we struggle with it in every other circumstance. Where? Because we're Americans. The expectation of the hierarchies it's very, very hard. Honoring your parents and obeying them. Submitting to your husbands. Because, well, and everybody knows it's true. Just like the demons, they know it's true. God said through his holy apostles, that was the way we do it. And, and we just can't struggle over it all the time. You know why? Well, let's take a look at possibly why. Because in every situation that you're doing something, you're trusting something to be in charge of how you're going to operate, right? So who do you trust? The federal government, because some people do. The Bible passage be trusting in the chariots of Egypt. Trusting in money. Money's got a good track record. It knows what it's doing. My son, this is Proverbs 3, at the bottom. Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and abundant welfare will they give you. Let not loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them about your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. And the passage that you all know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not, this is helpful, and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It might not be the chariots of Egypt, but you like yourself more than you think God likes you. 
You think that if a push comes to shove, you'd better make up your mind about what you're going to do than anyone else, whether that's your parents, whether that's your husband, whether that's your God. And consequently, when you're told that God, yes, he's God, and I believe he's God, and that means he's in charge, but no, I have faith in the doctrine, the demonic doctrines. I trust myself. Your own insight, your own eyes. Now, I'm just talking to people who want to have the life that is in the Christian life, the life that is in it, which comes from relinquishing your control, not saying that you don't have control in your life. God grants you, delegates you decisions you've got to make. You've got to pull your pants on one leg at a time, and you've got to decide which leg. But you know that when God asked for your son to be sacrificed, even when it was the child of the promise, do you travel for a few days to get to Mount Moriah and offer your son up on an altar? Do you do it? Because God said, and God compared to you, that's not that Abram didn't have an antipathy for his son. He had a love for God. He trusted God. It says in Hebrews about Abraham's faith, he would have done it because he trusted in him who could raise the dead. Where are you? How good a, do we just you know collect a bunch of doctrines together so we don't quite look so demonic when we tick them off as a list of things that we believe? And I believe this. This is classical theism. And I believe this too. I want to look at you and say, are you alive? Are you not alive? Is this just, do you believe God when he says things to you? When the scriptures are read and he tells you, this is how you do things, and you go, I don't like that. Whose view do you flush down the toilet? Who do you, uh, you go off to seminary and there's going to be bound to be some woke people who are, Getting around St. Paul 101, because that's what you got to do. You got to get around what God has said. Conservatives do it too. It's the wokeness is just annoying because it's so, you know, high school. But uh, the conservatives do it with a lot of scholarship and a lot of, uh, we really don't like this idea in, in the Bible. Who do you trust? It says in Matthew, Luke, I was, I was, where did I have that open to Luke? And I moved it to Micah. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee going up to the temple to pray. He said, this is the guy, this is his audience. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Those are people who are working to get from their God their due. If you obey your God, if you trust your God, he makes you righteous, forgives you for your unrighteousness, 
and you do what he says because you are membered with him. There's a, a reaction to being membered with something you consider to be the trusted element. This is your husband, your parents. You have a membership with them. The church you're in, you have a membership, not one you signed up for, but just a membership. It's great to see the kind of life that is being led here. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of money. We don't have, but things get done even without any church government. It's an amazing weirdness. But uh, um, I think because there's a membership, a felt connection. And when we feel that trust that sets my own in chargeness. I just I want to be in charge of my skin and my stuff, and I don't want anybody touching my stuff. When you become membered with something else, it becomes their stuff. You're happy to see what God has said you should do with your stuff. Happy to. Because you trust him more than you trust yourself. You don't lean on your own insight. You're not wise in your own eyes. There's a um, passage in John, the Gospel of John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, as you pick up the task of deciding who you're going to believe and who are you going to trust for command and control. Not because it's a list of rules you gotta do, but because no, you, you have given up your command, your wisdom about you, your understanding, your insight for God's insight. And the thing about the faith, it's a wonderful thing. This is a pretty thick book. We have a wide array of wisdom, teaching, not from just from God the Father sent through his prophets, but he sent his son. He sent his son. Believe in him, believe in God, believe also in me. And he works that back and says, if you believe in me, you believe in him who sent me. We know that once I believe, I've got a, <laughs> I've got a whole chain of command above my head. says in 1 John that uh, one of the ways you tell the believers from the unbelievers is whether or not they believe the apostles. Because God gave the apostles, through Christ, his authority. Have run into those people? Draw the line there. Well, yeah, I follow the teachings of Christ, but I think that St. Paul is just a little bit, bit too old-fashioned. Do you believe the people he has sent? Do you believe this cascade of authority and trust those in authority? You trust yourself because you love yourself. The old illustration of the worst possible thing that can happen to you is Lights go out, your kids left Legos all over the living room floor, you're barefoot, and you gotta 
you got to make it to the door. Got to make it to the kitchen. I don't know where you got to make it to. You have a choice. Someone else picking up your feet and putting them where they want to, or you picking up your feet and putting them where they want to. You want to. Well, you're going to pick you, right? Because you say, oh, I can step on a Lego, yeah, but it's my fault. I knew what I was doing. I care the most. It hurts my foot to step on a Lego. You don't care because you aren't feeling the pain of stepping on the Lego, so you're just going to have me run through the living room picking up 48 Legos in the bottom of my feet. Trust is really who we think is going to do us the best. This actually does come back to your faith. Who do you think the Lord, is he good? Is he benevolent? Does he love you more than you love you? Who do you trust? It's who do you love? Who do you think loves you? Has your best interest in mind? You're contributing something to your faith when you trust. You are deciding it's going to decide for you. When you say to yourself, lying on your back at a difficult time, you're going through an issue, I'm going to trust God in this. He's promised goodness to me. I'm going to trust him. What are you doing? You're relinquishing command and control. It's almost like less you doing things to please God and more you not doing things to please you, to keep you in charge. You're doing things, you're letting him have control. It doesn't ever tell you when it says in Philippians 4, be anxious over nothing, but with prayers and supplications, with thanksgiving, make your needs known to God. And God will give you an answer for those needs and tell you what plans to execute. No, he doesn't. He just says, you make your needs known. And the peace of God, which passes all our understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Trust is just saying, his way. I don't even have to know his way, but his way. It's a... Again an automatic membered reaction of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body. You have other areas to practice this in. Like I mentioned about parents, I mentioned about husbands. It's something that uh, is difficult in the modern age. Do you believe they're actually in charge? I mean, do you actually believe it? Not that the Bible or the church or whatever kind of suggests that, but do you believe that that's the way the world actually is and you're in that world? You have a greater desire to do what you're told because the agent who is really in charge of you is commanding you to do something. As I was thinking about this uh, issue, uh, so much uh, analysis of something without pushing people towards what do I do how do I pursue loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength? How do you, what, what's that? Sounds poetic and sounds, you know, pious, but why do you do that? Well, 
We know that we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. And this is an area you can renew your mind. And you can pose this question to yourself because your pursuits, what you pursue is evidence of what you've already decided, what tells you what paths you are already on. And the Lord's making your paths straight if you acknowledge him in all, your, all his ways. All your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. You probably could figure it out. And then it's a matter of being, frankly, you know, just sort of honest with what you believe. Do you believe like demons? And the church is guilty of this quite a bit just because we hang up statement of faith, all of which most of us agree would agree with. Hang a statement of faith. Ever been in those debates where Christ says something that you don't like? And you know he's said some things. We ought to have that kind of statement of, a statement of faith. Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is God, Jesus Christ is death, burial, resurrection. Over here is a statement of trust. If an evil man strikes me on one cheek, I will turn to him again the other. What about the situation where I... You're not going to be sacrificing your kid on the Mount Moriah because you always got an argument. You always got a path out. Just watch out for it. You want to have your pursuit. It's an echo of who you trust, where, what you're about. If you're, you know, I don't recommend that people read the Bible because someone tells them to read the Bible, or isn't it pious if they did read the Bible? No, you should be saying, I am in pursuit of this because this is who I trust more than I trust myself. Do you spend all your time? It's not bad. Spend all your time building bigger barns. That's not wrong but it's not being rich towards God. So you're just, your pursuits are the echo of who you trust. Look at yourself in the mirror. Look at yourself. Decide how much you're going to pursue God. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. We're just very grateful. In your son's name, amen.